Let's turn together into God's Word and to Luke 15 this morning. Luke 15, page 874 in your Bibles there, in the rack in front of you. Luke chapter 15, so we continue our study through the gospel according to Luke. In Luke 15, we find one of Jesus' most familiar parables, the parable of the prodigal son, or as I find it more accurate, uh, the parable of the two lost sons. And we'll talk about that this morning. But building up to that parable are two other parables which also have a similar theme, and they, that is they reveal God's heart. His joy over sinners coming to salvation. We want to look at them all together this morning as we read uh, those, uh, the entire chapter, Luke 15. We'll be looking mostly at the parable of the two lost sons, but we want to read it in the context of these other parables. I invite you to listen now as the word of God is read, starting in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, my, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So far the reading of God's unholy word. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever for his glory and for the edification of his people. Our people of God, the first two parables in Luke 15 are not throwaway parables, but we're, we're going to jump over them uh, uh, more or less this morning. They're, they're, they're building up to this final parable, the parable of the lost, uh, two lost sons. Uh, there in that parable, we see the father's beautiful and joyous love on display in contrast to the religious leaders who are pictured in that elder son who has a disgust toward his younger brother. Now, you've heard sermons, I'm sure, on this parable. I've preached sermons on this parable. I, as I'm reading through, I'm thinking about those points that I made in the past. We're not going to look at all the details this morning. What I want us to consider is the contrast between the regenerate sinner and the self-righteous sinner. And the heart of God toward the repentant sinner. So we're looking at just a comparison, a a contrast. The opening verses provide the the, the preparation for this parable. They orient us to the whole chapter. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. So they're drawing near. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Two groups coming to listen to Jesus, tax collectors and sinners, drawing near, Pharisees and teachers, grumbling. And they find their way, these two groups find their way into Jesus' parable of the two lost sons. Tax collectors and sinners correspond to that younger son. They're not those who follow the law. They don't keep the moral laws of the Bible. There's no love for them, for the ceremonies of Judaism. They don't follow those purity laws. They're engaged in what what can be described as wild living. And like the younger brother, they left home, as it were, by leaving the traditional morality of their families and of respectable society, as one commentator has put it. They're kind of sowing their wild oats. They're going off and doing their thing. Pharisees and teachers of the law are represented by the elder brother. They held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They studied and obeyed the scriptures. And they worshipped faithfully and prayed regularly. But in just a few words, Luke sets the contrast here. 
In a few words, there's a different response from these two groups of listeners. The sinners are drawing near. The religious leaders were grumbling. That word grumbling is not a, not a positive thing. Obviously, we, we know that. But in the, it's the word that also appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, when it's speaking in Exodus and Numbers about how the Israelites grumbled, constantly grumbling, grumbling, oh, if only we were back in Egypt, if only this. And Luke seems to be saying, if, if, if the hearers picked up on, on these sorts of things, if the reader is supposed to pick up on these sorts of things, that, that these are just, they're clones of this past generation. They're, they act just like their ancestors. They grumble when they should be rejoicing at the thought of sinners coming to salvation. Around 17 times that word or words related to it, to grumbling, unbelief, and rebellion uh, come up here. Well, why are they so upset? Well, the tax collectors and sinners keep coming. That's the, it's a progressive tense in the, in the Greek. That's the, the character of Jesus' ministry. That's something that makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> sinners were attracted to, to Jesus because of his compassion and his kindness, because of his care. They, they were coming to him. That was, a, that was normal for him. Is that true of us? Do they, or do people just see us as, well, we're going to cross the other side of, to the other side of the street. We don't want to talk to those people. We're not like those people. Well, so what do the religious leaders think? They're thinking, well, Jesus must be just telling them what they want to hear. That's why they're coming to him. How could he possibly be the Lord's uh, Messiah? How, how could he be God's Messiah, the, the, the Savior? If these sinners, these wretched tax collectors, these wild living hooligans, maybe it was my grandpa we used to say, would, well, if they're coming to him, what, what could he possibly be saying but what they wanted to hear? But that's not the case, is it? His whole message, Jesus' whole message is on what? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Acknowledge your sin. Know yourself to be a sinner. And then come, and there is room for you in the kingdom of God. He's calling them to repent, and he's celebrating when they do. And that is the response in heaven. Luke writes that into his gospel account. Uh, These are Jesus' words, but it's interesting. Luke is is laying this out, and we ought not to miss it. He says on numerous occasions, there, there is rejoicing in heaven when this happens. He says, when they come, the lost are found. There's, he says, rejoice, for I have found the, the lost sheep. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Rejoice, there's joy, or there will be joy. Then he says in verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God. What's, what's he saying? What's, what's Jesus saying? How does he know that? Because he's from there. <laughs> He's making the point, I have come from my Father in heaven, and I know the joy that is uh, uh, experienced, that is proclaimed, that is uh, uh, announced in heaven when sinners repent. Jesus is Son of God, eternal with the Father, from glory, come to earth, to call lost sinners to repentance, to include them in the kingdom. The gospel, Gospels record Jesus' teaching for us, and they tell us what Jesus said the response should be to his teaching. Sinners must obey, and people should rejoice. We should rejoice, people of God, when there are professions of faith. We've had a handful of those, and there should be great joy over that. 
Now, I think sometimes in our covenantal understanding, we say, well, of course they're going to profess their faith. That's what people do in the covenantal understanding. They grow up in the church and they profess faith. And we lose sight of the fact that it's God's work that transforms a sinful heart, a dead heart, into a living heart. We should rejoice, for the angels in heaven rejoice when there is a lost sinner who comes to faith in Christ. Well, you say to yourself, what is Jesus getting at here? As he teaches, whose side is he on? He appears to be favoring, and we're going, moving into the parable of the two lost sons, seems to be favoring that younger son, doesn't he? He seems to kind of speak as though he's, he's not in the wrong. It's the old elder brother. Well, is Jesus taking sides? No, he's not on the side either of the irreligious or the religious. Though here he is focusing on the dangers of empty religion or empty moralism. He warns the self-righteous that they too need to repent of their sin. They, need, they too need to repent of their pride and to turn to him for the forgiveness of sins. He is there and he is giving invitation and they should respond. And they should not keep sinners from repenting of their sin and coming to Christ and finding new life. Jesus is not implying that the younger brother is less sinful, is Teaching reveals the destructive and self-centeredness of this younger brother. We'll see in a few moments. But he is clearly condemning the elder brother's proud self-righteousness. Both irreligious and religious are spiritually lost, writes one commentator. Both life paths are dead ends. Every thought the human race has ever had about how to connect with God has been wrong. It's the gospel that sets... That right. It is only through Christ that we can be connected to God. Let's look more closely at the parable of the two lost sons. There we see Jesus stating, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Give me my share of the property. He took it, squandered it in a far off country. After a severe famine arose, he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, engaging in that which was considered unclean, feeding pigs, feeding swine. He's a real lost cause, we might say, someone who's, who, who's beyond hope. His disrespect of his father, his reckless living and his stubbornness are on display. His sinfulness is evident. But Jesus then says something about the other son in the family, the elder brother. Later in that chapter, verse 28, the elder brother hears that the younger brother returns and he's angry and refuses to go in to celebrate. And he is upset with his father. His anger is a big problem. And we know that anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. That's what we read in James 1 verse 20. And yet we sometimes think that this is, that this is going to fix things. This is going to solve things. We're going to set people straight in anger. Not this type of anger. He's disrespected his father, his generosity, and his kindness. His father had the right to do with his resources what he wanted. And yet what he can, all he can do is rebuke his father. 
He reminds his father of how diligent he was. He says, I've, I've slaved for you. That's the word there in the original. The NIV captures that. I've slaved for you my whole life, and you've never even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. He says, I've never disobeyed you. Now, children, I always say to my, well, I used to say to them, they ought to know it by now. I say, don't use the word never or always. I never do that, or I, you always do that. Those are dangerous words. Because those are absolutes, and you could probably find exceptions to that rule. But here, when he says, I've never disobeyed, do you think that's true? No. No, he has disobeyed, and yet he sees himself in a, a very pure way. And he rebukes his father for rejoicing that his younger brother had returned home. This is the picture of the smug Pharisees. They don't want these sinners coming to salvation. The parable's teaching is certainly weighted toward the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes, but before we look at that, we we want to look at the younger brother. Verse 14, again, I said we're not going to look at all the pieces to this. There's a lot in here. Uh, but verse 14, he, had, he spends everything. He squanders it. He's living the high life. And then a severe famine arises in the country, in the country where he is. And he began to be in need. The word there is hustereo, which is the word from which we get hysterical. He was in dire straits. He was in a bad way. And he knew it. But we read, verse 17, when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and went. I want you to notice with me this morning the transformation that happened in this sinful child. When he came to his senses, is how the NIV translates it. Here we have, when he came to himself. True awareness of one's sin is a gracious work of God in the heart. When we come to our senses, when we come to our right mind, God helps us to do that, that we might see things for the way they are. It's not the circumstances that are the problem. It's not other people. It's, it's me, what I have to think about. Paul Tripp in his book, How People Change, says there are three ingredients to faith-driven repentance. These are worth jotting down. Three ingredients to faith-driven repentance. This is under the two responses, comparing the two responses. First, we need to wake up, we need to own up, and we need to shift our weight. We're going to go through those. First, we wake up. Verse 17, when he came to himself, when he woke up, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I, I perish here with hunger. What am I doing I'm turning away from all the blessings that my Father has for me. I've turned my back upon the Lord. He wakes up. Paul Tripp writes this, Real repentance means that you see that your biggest problem is you, not your circumstances. No matter how difficult things may be, your deepest need is to know and be known by God. In the case of the prodigal son, it took difficulty and poverty to awaken him to his true condition. Isn't that true? It often takes trial. It often takes struggle for us to see our true condition. We have to wake up to the situation. We think, boy, we are in dire straits. This is 
This is bad. The world says that teaching about personal sin can only lead a person to depression and anxiety. But God says the only way that true peace comes into our hearts is by waking up to our own sin and to God's grace. He's done everything to establish relationship between us and him. And when we connect to the almighty creator of all things, then we have nothing to fear. There is no hysterics necessary, no hysteria, for he cares for us. He provides for us, as we're going to see tonight in the sermon. It's a rebellious mind, not the clear-thinking mind that rejects this truth. So we wake up. Secondly, we own up. Verse 18, what what does the prodigal son, the younger son do? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Prodigal son's wake up is followed by repentance. Faith-driven repentance does not treat sin lightly and it does not treat God's grace lightly. True faith-driven repentance recognizes the seriousness of my sin and does not say God's grace will just cover it so it doesn't matter or it's easy. The son the son saw his sin. There's three subpoints under this second point going to make you note takers yet sub points under the main point to own up there's three things involved in that paul tripp says or he points out what's there godly sorrow not worldly sorrow first off the son saw that his sin was against his father godly sorrow sees that god's love not just his commands have been treated lightly godly sorrow says i have sinned against god who loves me Not just, well, I broke this command and, well, okay, I'll take the punishment. Let's get back on track. But I've sinned against the the one who who loves me and wants me to walk in the path of life. This is an offense against my loving Heavenly Father. Worldly sorrow produces self-pity. Godly sorrow produces true humility. Second sub-point, see the sin beneath the sins. Paul Tripp writes, you begin to see the heart sins beneath the behavioral sins. Yeah, I did this and this and this, but it's just, it's not who I am. Oh, but it is. You see, what is in the heart overflows into one's actions. What behavior you show is what is there in your heart. What drives the sinful behaviors is a sinful heart. And it's at this point writes Tripp, that a person can be self-critical without getting defensive or depressed. Simply acknowledging, yes, I am examining my heart and seeing that there is need to be forgiven, that I need a Savior to be delivered. And I'm not going to get defensive and I'm not going to get depressed because I know where I can turn to receive forgiveness. Third sub-point, repent of sin and righteousness. What does he mean by that? Repent of sin and righteousness. 
righteousness. Well, when God works faith in Christ, the believer starts repenting of not just sin, but of self-righteousness, thinking, well, I'm making myself uh, uh, favorable to God by what I do. No, sometimes we, we do those goods for the wrong reason. We're worshiping other gods. We're trying to earn God's favor rather than to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're doing here then, when we own up to our sin, is repent of thinking that our doing is what separates us from those sinners over there. Oh, well, I know why I'm not like them, because I do this stuff over here. The difference is Christ. It's not that I'm less sinful or more good, but that God is so gracious in Christ And I own up to my sin and all my attempts to try to earn favor by doing good. Biblical repentance leads us to repent even of good efforts because they cannot make one right with God. Now, children, before I move on, we're called to do good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we, we, okay, so we don't do any good. No, but God saves us from our sins and saves us unto good works so that we might obey our parents. We might obey those in authority over us. That we might do good to those around us to show the goodness of God. So it's not that we don't do good, but we don't do good thinking we're going to earn salvation by doing so. We do it because we're thankful to God for his grace and his mercy. So we wake up, we own up, and then thirdly, we shift weight. The younger son, verse 20, arises, goes to, uh, goes to his father, and his father sees him a long way off and embraces him, and the, the son receives his gracious embrace. Paul Tripp writes, when I admit the depth of my sin and repent, as the younger son did, the love of the father, son, and Holy Spirit is better understood, and I want to live for the triune God. When I When I repent of my sin, when I acknowledge it for all of its ugliness, for all of its dirtiness, and see that God still loves me, then I I want more to to love him. And I want to receive his gracious embrace in Christ. I want to live for him. And John, to to use the words of John the Baptist, um, he becomes more and I become less. He becomes greater. We become less. When we repent, we know the forgiveness of God. And we know that our peace doesn't come from, I'm no longer a sinner, that is, I don't sin any longer, but rather that God has taken all my sins and placed them upon Christ, and his righteousness has been given to me, that in him I might know God as Father. We look to the infinite sacrifice of Christ and not at our sin as we lean on him And know the peace that passes all understanding. Well, now contrast the elder brother. He's angry, verse 28 says. Refuses to go in to celebrate his brother's repentance and return. His father entreats him to celebrate over this good turn of events. That word is interesting in the original. It's parakaleo. It's a a tense of parakaleo, which is the same uh, word group as parakletos, which is the word for Holy Spirit. God is entreating, God is, is, is by his spirit calling to this brother to come, and he refuses. And we see in the self-righteous that same response. I don't need to come. I'm doing all this. I've done all this. 
I have plans to do all this. I don't need to come. Yet the father says, come and rejoice when one says, I repent of all my sin, of all my wickedness, and fall before the cross of Christ. But this elder brother says, I don't have any need, and I certainly will not rejoice over such a sinner being celebrated in his return. He's offended by his father's display of love, which he thought was overindulgent and even disgusting. The father said to his older son, we had to celebrate, verse 32. It's translated, it was fitting, but the Greek there is, it's necessary. It is, we had to celebrate and be glad, for this year brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is necessary. This is the response to such things. We had to celebrate. We should be ecstatic when a sinner repents and believes in Jesus, when one under discipline returns. Remember the setting, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling that sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Jesus received sinners and he ate with them. They would not rejoice. I read an inch, a good story this week. A man told his, a story about his friend named Edith. Edith told of the day when she was led to turn to Christ by faith. She didn't care much for religion, but there was a particular Sunday and she was trying to do something with her inward discontent. So she left her apartment. She went to the local church and this passage was being uh, preached. The text was Luke 15, 1 and 2. And the pastor read from the King James and it reads this way, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eateth with them. That's what he read, but here's what Edith heard. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. She sat straight up in the pew. And eventually she figured out her mistake, he writes here. But the thought that Jesus welcomed sinners, and that included Edith, stayed with her. I like that story. She began to... She began to draw near to Jesus and delighted in his grace, glorying in Christ's sacrifice for her. And we have her story along with so many others. And we should rejoice over that. Jesus welcomes sinners. The Pharisees would not. He says their attitude is all wrong because their heart was all wrong. It should have been celebrating that sinners were coming to Jesus. That word joy, rejoicing, celebrating, is seen uh, nearly a dozen times in these verses. This is the attitude of heaven, dear friends. The attitude of heaven that should be in our hearts now. Now, Jesus' words were quite heavy to these self-righteous. He says there in verse 7, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner repenting than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, this is a rebuke of the Pharisees. 
for they did not think that they needed to repent. Nowhere does Jesus teach that there are those who are righteous and do not need to repent. What he's saying here is there's joy over those who do repent. And there's a warning for those who, do not, who think they do not need to repent. He was describing them as they thought of themselves. He wanted them to know they were in danger of being cut off from the kingdom, for they showed no awareness of their sin or need to repent. Their joyless self-righteousness was a clear indicator that they did not have the heart of God in them and were not citizens of his kingdom. So the question we ask ourselves today is, do I care that sinners hear about Jesus? Do I rejoice when lost sinners come to faith in Christ? Do I delight in God's gracious work each and every day in, in my life? That's what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to rejoice and to celebrate God's grace, to have this heart for the lost, this joy, this joy in the salvation of those who live as enemies of the cross but are brought near by God's grace. This is to have the heart of Christ. And I pray that God would give us such a heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear this familiar parable again, we identify so many things in it that are true of us that ought not to be true of us. Things that should be true of us that are beginning to be true of us. We repent that which is not true of us, which should be true of us. We rejoice in what is becoming more and more Christ-like in us. And we pray for increasing growth in Christ-likeness, including in our joy and celebration when we see and we hear of those coming to faith in Jesus Christ, for that is nothing but a miracle. It is bringing dead people to life. As we hear your Son speaking on the way to the cross, He speaks urgently these words. Call the lost sinner. Rejoice in their coming. Delight in the grace of my Father. Lord, may that be true of us here. May we encourage each other here. Walk alongside of those who are struggling in the faith. Urging them on. Promising our prayers. Giving them our help. And together, coming to you for the grace sufficient for all of our challenges. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.